Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. How are you doing? It's David here. Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast that every week tries to make economics a little bit less jargony, a wee bit more comprehensible and hopefully more relevant to all of our lives. Now, this week, I want to talk about the fragility of democracy against a background of Britain, the so-called home of the mother of parliaments, suspending its parliament because its prime minister doesn't like what the parliament might do. This is serious, serious stuff. I also want to go a little bit deeper into Brexit and look at the economics of winner-takes-all, the economics of inequality, and why this drove Brexit and continues to give legitimacy to what is a nationalist movement in a country that, frankly, four or five years ago, you would have thought this had never happened. So that's it this week. The Fragility of Democracy... Why is it happening and where is it going to lead us? Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content and perhaps more importantly to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. As always, I am joined by John. How are you, Head? I'm very good. I believe that you have started boxing. I've got you. I've got <laughs> you, you into it. You no. Uh, yeah, I was. I was away, <laughs> as you know, all summer, and there was a lot of red wine drunk, a lot of weight put on, and I decided when I came home, I'm going to go to that lad yeah. who teaches John how to box. I can hardly walk. Yeah, Neil Bowman, he's the man. I tell he'll you, sort you out. He'll sort he'll, that bag out for I'll you. I tell you, the Ned, the Ned is shuddering <laughs> as it looks at Neil. The last two mornings now, I've come in. I there are bits of my body I didn't know I owned that are aching, right? <laughs> and uh, it has been a very humbling experience. I would say so. I found that I'm, when I started as well. I'm I'm aching, but apparently it's all going to be lean and yeah. fit. And you know what's going to happen, of course going to do all this it's going to be fine and then come the crimbo going yeah. to go back on you, you let yourself go but you'll be ready for mcgregor at some stage i will two rounds <laughs> only two rounds in the octagon Good anyway month. so that's me i've been boxing and and acting the maggot and uh but thinking about what's going on in england okay well let's start with this then just to get back to parliament i'm afraid that the more our friends and partners think at the back of their minds that Brexit could be stopped, that the UK could be kept in by Parliament, 
the less likely they are to give us the deal that we need. Trying to shut down Parliament in order to force through a no-deal Brexit that everybody knows will do real and lasting damage to people the length and breadth of the UK is not democracy, it's dictatorship. I mean, Boris Johnson, let's not forget, is not elected by anybody other than the Conservative Party. My job is to stand up for the rights of the House of Commons. Yeah. I'm Portuguese. And I worked here for 20 years and I have no voice and the resentment scheme is not working. I build things for you. I looked after your children. I looked after the elderly in this country. Now you kick me out with what? With what? So who would have thought it? What the hell is going on? It kind of looks a little bit like fascism. Well, or is, is, that a bit, is that a bit strong? Well, it's, it's interesting, John. The most important thing is to appreciate how weird this is, how out of all normal behaviour this is, and how, if you want to talk about fascism, how good countries can go bad very quickly. Now, yeah. I've been watching the UK very dispassionately. You know I've got relations in the North who voted for yep, Brexit. Yep. You know, I have lots of friends in England. We spent a, Both you and I spent a long time there. And up until the last few days, I've thought that this was weird, it was unusual, but it was within the boundaries of normal politics. Now let's look at Britain has an unwritten constitution. It doesn't have a constitution yeah. because it talks about always the sovereignty of parliament. So the Brits talk this thing, the mother of all parliaments, yeah. even though the Icelandic parliament predates it by a few hundred years. But there you go. You never, in fact, the Isle of Man parliament predates does Westminster. It? Yes, it does. These are unusual, ridiculous <laughs> facts that are in the back of my head, right? But anyway, uh, but the mother of all parliaments, it's a parliamentary democracy. So the essential nature is that Britain will be run by a parliamentary democracy based on the House of Commons and ultimately elections, parliamentary elections, are the most important thing. Yeah. Brexit throws this into total confusion by imposing a referendum. So suddenly you go from a parliamentary democracy where parliament is sovereign, but it also has the checks and balances and the backroom deals and it's representative to a populist democracy based on referendum. Yeah. And the problem with referendums is, yes, at a certain point, they take a snapshot of public opinion and given what the public is fed at the time, even if the information is biased, it is a snapshot. But it's not a continuum. And the great thing about Parliament is it's a continuum. It's over four or five years, there's various different parties, yeah. right? Now, to go back to fascism, it's no surprise that referendums were used by people like Hitler. The first referendum Hitler had was on the Saarland, the Saarland, which is the retake the Saarland uh, after the First World War, yeah. okay, which went to the French. This is 1931. This is 1933 when he okay. gets in. The second referendum, of course, is the Anschluss of Austria. And all the while, this guy is using referenda as his political cover to do appalling things because he's talking about the will of the people. Yeah. Once you hear politicians talking the will of the people, it's actually time to worry. Because yes, it sounds absolutely right. But if you even go back years and years ago to the Roman Empire, John, 
there's two uh, two fellows called the Gracchi brothers in Roman history. Okay. And their idea was to take the Senate out of the equation because the Senate was like the parliament and consequently to enhance the people having a direct relationship with the emperor, right? This is the Gracchi. Steve Bannon believes all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And so once you begin to use the referendum, you begin to emasculate the political culture in somewhere like the United Kingdom. Second thing to worry about is if you look at what's happened in the UK, you know, first of all, judges were called the enemy of the people. Secondly, the media is incredibly partisan yeah. and lies openly all the time. Yeah. Thirdly, now they've suspended the parliament. So all the institutes of state, the parliament, the judiciary, the civil service, for example, who yeah. are all against Brexit, now the civil service are all being, again, emasculated, the foreign office, all these people. So the institutions that make Britain the country that it is are now under direct attack. And I think this is quite worrying because ultimately, if you go back to Hitler, what Hitler did was he threatened the very elderly, maybe slightly senile, we're not too sure, Hindenburg, the last president of the Weimar Republic. Yeah. And basically he said, give me the power and I will go and circumvent this parliament. Boris Johnson goes to, you know, Betty Windsor and more or less bullies her, I suspect. Or the point is, what's the point of the monarchy if they don't stand up for the institutions? Well, the that would have been very political of, of her if she did. Yeah, but what's the point of her if it's not political? Anyway, that's another well, question. Well, she's supposed to be non-political. Yeah, but, but equally. So anyway, so okay, what you have now is a country that used to be defined by common sense, middle of the road, consensus, mother of parliaments, becoming a country that looks, from the outside at least, to be going down a deeply, deeply anti-democratic way, bullying everybody by this snapshot of public opinion yeah. called the Brexit referendum. And I'm always interested in when looking at history saying, when people say, why didn't you see that coming? You know, everybody says, mm. how, did we, how did we not see that coming? And our discussion that we're sharing this week is with H.A. Temelkeren, yes. who wrote a beautiful book called Seven Ways to Lose Your Country. That was a great discussion you had with her. Well, it's really interesting, John, because she was talking about Turkey. And basically, Western Europeans, Northwestern Europeans of our generation, kind of console ourselves by the idea that, you know, it couldn't happen here. Yeah. That happens in Turkey. That happens in these sort of countries. Everywhere else but here. Yeah. Now it's happened in the UK. And of course, the leader of the Scottish Tories has resigned because she knows that this means Scottish independence. Yeah. You know, this is a red rag. And what is happening is the United Kingdom has been hijacked by an unelected tiny minority, this EORG extreme, what I call Brexit jihadis, right? <laughs> if you can right. imagine, that's what they are. They're, like, they're like extreme Brexiteers, yeah. they're like jihadis. And they have decided that Johnson, he has to deliver Brexit come what may. Once he delivers Brexit, whether it's a no deal or a deal, he will then go to the people. He believes he'll be able to win the election and get five years in power, which is exactly what he wants. They seem to be obsessed by turning the United Kingdom into some low-tax kind of cowboy capitalist country. Yeah. 
very obvious to me is that that begins the process where Scotland goes, because the Scots are, if you look at the SNP, very left-wing, very socialist, totally yeah. at odds with this free buccaneering capitalism. You know, they, they, they use this, the Brexiteers use the word buccaneering, but they forget that the buccaneers were pirates. Yeah. You know, it's not a good thing, yeah. you know? So but I, the, the referendum results in, just to, to remind ourselves, the referendum results in Scotland was 64% Hugely pro-European. Yeah, Hugely pro-European. I think in Edinburgh it was almost 90%. Was it? So what you see is, interestingly, if Hitler used referenda to unify, solidify and expand Germany, Boris Johnson is using the referenda to diminish divide and break up the UK. It's kind of ironic, but there is where we're at. That's incredible. And I wonder, do the kind of general population at this stage, they're so weary of, of Brexit. Are they kind of going, well, thank God, something's happening. There's some movement. And perhaps the full realisation hasn't hit home and probably won't for a while well, of the implications of, of You know, the, the interesting thing about Brexit is the incessant propaganda from the pro-Brexit press, from the Sun to the Mail to the Express to the Telegraph. So that's across all classes. Sun being a working class paper, Express being an old, what I would call golf club revolutionary paper, basically old Brexiteers. Daily Mail, middle of the road, and of course the Tory Telegraph, upper class paper, upper middle class paper. So across the entire gamut of what English people are reading every day is this reinforcing propaganda that basically says Europe is the enemy, the establishment is the enemy, the elite is the enemy, and once we get rid of these, we will be on this unstoppable course of make Britain great again. Yeah, so it's almost like a Fox News. Well, it is, and, and you know, we shouldn't underestimate the role of the incessant propaganda which is driving. So the common man we were talking about, probably thinks, I'm sick of this. I want to come out, which is apparently the new word they're using. And <laughs> let's just get it word. done. Let's just get it done. Let's get it over with and blah, blah, blah. So they're kind of bamboozled by the whole thing. But that's why Parliament is important, John, because it's Parliament that doesn't want the no deal. And it's Parliament that represents, and the British people are right to say, look, we have a system of democracy, which I would call spectator democracy. It's not real democracy. Like, the Swiss have a system of democracy called direct democracy, yeah. where they basically vote on almost everything. It's yeah, very yeah, lo- heavily localised. Yeah. Yeah. The Brits have what we have, which is spectator democracy, which is that every four years, you give either the thumbs up. Remember in the Roman, the forum, the emperor would give the thumbs up or the thumbs down, yeah, right? Yeah, so every yeah. four years, we give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to a party. And then we say, now you get on with the job of running the place. Yeah. That's what a parliamentary democracy is all about. So the British people have said, look, we have now voted in the election, we vote in the referendum, we have given you the job of governing the place. What Johnson has done is he's taken the parliament out of the equation and said, my legitimacy is derived from the popular vote. And that is the politics of deep populism. So tell me this, how did this happen and why now? Right, well, I think that's the really interesting question because I think most people have forgotten why this has happened. What is the economics of Brexit? What is the economics of populism? 
And why is this not going away? That's the interesting thing. This is not just a unique UK movement. We see this in France. We see it in Italy. We see it in America, of course, with Trump. We see it in Brazil. We see it in Turkey. We see it in all these countries where a strong individual has emerged wrapped in the flag, suggesting the enemy is somebody on the outside. And I think we've got to go to economics, as always, and look at what I would call winner-takes-all markets. It's basically the economics of inequality. Okay. That inequality has, with the exception of Ireland, which is, again, I keep saying Ireland is an outlier. And in all these areas, we really are. What we've noticed over the last 30 years in the United States and maybe the last 25 years, 30 years in the UK, is that the returns to the very top of professions have become hugely significant. And the average guy has fallen behind. So the gap between the middle class and the elite has opened up and it's huge now. And also because the gap between the middle class and the elite has opened up, the middle class feel they're falling backwards. Even if they aren't in absolute terms, they are in relative terms. Before I go into it, one of the most important things in economics is to understand that what drives the political reaction to economics isn't the absolute it is the relative. So it's not yeah, how much sense. stuff that I have. Yeah. It's how much stuff I have compared to you. Yeah. So if I feel that I'm falling back compared to you, it's the comparison. So if your neighbor has a big posh house, or if your neighbor has a new car, or if your neighbor's going on swanky holidays, even if you're doing exactly what you were doing last year, you begin to feel diminished. JP Morgan had a quote on that, didn't he? Well, he did. He did about, uh, it's a great quote, actually. It's about how people lose their minds when they're investing, particularly in the housing market. And he said that nothing so undermines your financial judgment as the sight of your neighbor getting rich, Yeah, which is a beautiful quote. Yeah, and that can be applied to a number of situations, not just the housing. So let's talk about the inequality and this notion of winner takes all economics, because economics has sold the myth that markets are competitive. So basically supply and demand will dictate. So if the price of something goes up, the demand for that will go down. And if the price of something goes up, the supply of that will go up. And consequently, as Adam Smith said, the invisible hand comes in and the entire market will tend to recalibrate at a new price and a new quantity, right? That is actually not how the labor market works at all, John. What you see is you look at, for example, the market for chief executives. Chief executives in Ireland last week Uh, it was announced that they earn about 41 times the average wage of the average employee in their companies. In the United States, it's hundreds of times. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you're seeing is the people at the top are pulling away from the people in the middle in a huge, huge way. And this we used to see, John, in sports and entertainment. So, for example, Leonardo DiCaprio gets paid gazillion times more than somebody else because he brings in the bacon. Yeah. Roy Keane got paid loads. Ronaldo got paid loads. Messi gets paid loads. And the idea in sport and in entertainment, we have learned to accept the winner takes all. But what you now see is, and that's what they call superstar economics. Yeah. But what you now see is this seeping into all sorts of 
even art artisan type professions like superstar gardeners superstar chefs you have in professions you've superstar barristers you've superstar architects so what you're seeing is that in the middle classes the people who pull away are pulling away at a rate never seen before in professions yeah and are never seen in corporations which we'll talk about in a minute and this is a phenomenon that's been driven now by technology and technology has changed the nature of markets. And we can talk about that. But it's interesting, actually, you know, there's the superstar guys as well. I mean, there's, there's a whole new thing that I, I'm not familiar with, a whole new phrase of superstar economics. But I was thinking, after reading your article there, I was also thinking about, you're talking about technology, influencers. Social media has brought on a whole lot of influencers who earn millions. Kim Kardashian and those are... are Prime examples of that, they've become. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Superstar whatevers for doing nothing but, you know, flogging goods. Well, it's quite and endorsing interesting. goods. You Poor know? old Kim Kardashian may well be an influencer, but anyone who spends a night of her honeymoon at the multiplex in Port Leash <laughs> doesn't cut the mustard with me, I'm afraid. So anyway, apart from that, let's come back to this idea of superstar economics. Can you explain to me a bit more? Okay, so I'll give you an example. The superstar economics is all about the massive fall in the cost of three things which determine markets. One is distribution, mm-hmm. one is production, and one is search. These are the three things. So, What do you search, mean by search? How do I search somebody? How do I find somebody who's good? So remember in the old okay. days, if you were in, you were much more into music than I was, right? And people would go over to the, remember fellas would go over to England with the NME and they come back with a rake of LPs yeah. under their yeah. arms. You've got to listen to the Clash and the Pistols and la, 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 right? The cost of search in the late 70s and early 80s, was very high. Yeah, You had to go from Dunleary to Hollyhead, Hollyhead to London. You had to go and search yourself. Now you go online. So the cost of search has dropped dramatically, yeah. right? Distribution, again, because of the internet, the cost of distribution has dropped dramatically. Sure, yeah. And production, because of the internet, the cost of production has dropped dramatically. Yeah. So these are 
massive, massive disruptive changes in the way in which we receive information and the way in which we receive ideas about what's good and what's bad. Yeah. Now, the best way to think about it is imagine the market for opera singers in Italy in 1900. Okay. There's a lot of data on this, which is great. The, the market for opera singers was very disparate. There were hundreds of opera singers who made a crust traveling around village by village, town by town, singing. Yeah. All of them maybe equally good, maybe some were better than others, but you couldn't tell because you couldn't benchmark was your man good or not because you couldn't hear anybody else until a couple of weeks later right. and you couldn't remember, yeah. right? So basically everybody- It was such a rare thing anyway, you're just enjoying the, the night yeah, out. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. So the, the market for it, so there was hundreds of opera singers making a decent wage, traveling around. Their fans was only limited to the people who actually heard them in public. Their brand was only limited to the word of mouth of the people who had actually heard them in public. And their ability to distribute their product was zero because they had to be present. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah, it. Yeah, it's a live event and that's it. Then about 1910, 1912, 1913, you get the beginning of gramophones. Gramophones begin this process where the best singer the Pavarotti's of his time, yeah. suddenly begins to be able to record. Then he records, then they press the records, then the records get distributed, then he becomes a name, he becomes a brand, and within about 15 years, four or five opera singers get to the very top and the rest disappear. Totally. Yeah. So what happened there was technology, the gramophone and the record, and the radio, of course, which is the medium by which people could hear yeah. this stuff if you didn't have a gramophone in your house, which most people didn't. The radio begins the process of bringing all the rewards to the superstar. And therefore, all the previous people who used to make a living out of traveling around as opera singers no longer get listened to. So that's a lovely example of the way this works. Yeah. Now think about, for example, how it works in football in ice hockey, in tennis, in music, in everything, what you basically see is the superstars emerge. And as technology becomes much more cheap, becomes much more available, the cost of search falls, because you just Google somebody, mm -hmm. you no longer ask your mate. Like there's no geezer, remember when we were kids, there was always somebody with a good taste in music. Yeah. Somebody made a shit taste, right? Yeah. But I'd always kind of get my taste off somebody else. Like in our roads, there was yeah. always somebody who knew their stuff, yeah. right? And they'd be mavens in a way. They'd be, they'd lead the curve that of change. That was me. It was you. Except you the weakness for Bob Dylan, which I can never. And ELO. Listen, I don't know. I'll tell you what, as I get older, I understand the arrangement of ELO. Oh, they were very, terrific. Very good. In actual fact, it's my, was, it's my guilty secret. No, it's not. Let's, let's, let's bring it out. I was listening to Neil Hannon of the Divine Comedy. Yeah. And if Neil Hannon says something is musically okay, it's cool. Oh, is me. he a fan? Is he? He's a massive know. ELO fan. Massive, massive. Okay, We right just on, have to dispense with coolness. But go back to, to our, our discussion, right? What you have is the middleman who used to be the fella or the girl who had a musical taste is now gone. So the cost of search has gone. Didn't have to go over to London, read the enemy. Number two, the cost of distribution is zero. It's totally zero, yeah. you know? Which is why artists drop albums, which we call albums because we're so old, right? For free. And of course, the cost of the product is zero too. 
So all of those factors and also drive I, the which, superstar. Yeah, and also I, you know there is the added thing of the push and the pull through social media as well. All that stuff, and you know, all the promotion because you can read. And then, as we mentioned earlier, we have Kim Kardashian and Katie Price. I can't think of any others actually, but you that's know, all really, these influencers. John, that's a really good reflection on you <laughs> yeah, as, I'm, as I'm, a man. I'm, I'm okay with that actually. I'm okay with that too. So, in the superstars, it used to be related just to the entertainers and the sportsmen and women. It is now everywhere. So, for example, in in Dublin, you have superstar barristers. The superstar barrister's price goes up. If competitive markets worked, the demand for her services would go down. But what happens when your price goes up? Everyone wants you. So when your price goes up, more people come to you because they think you are better. So consequently, more and more business goes to the person who has more and more business. So it's, it's not constant... necessarily based on talent. No, so it's, it's a combination of talent. You do have to have the talent and perception and branding and distribution yeah. and marketing. So what you're seeing then is a tiny minority in every walk of life are beginning to pull away from the average. And this is creating massive inequalities and perceptions of inequality. Even if you look at, for example, corporations, John, you also get superstar companies and superstar companies pay their employees significant multiples of other companies. So, for example, McKinsey came out with a report last year, 10% of the world's listed firms generate 80% of all the profits. And firms with at least 1 billion in revenue now account for 60% of total global revenue and 65% of market cap. So what you're seeing is in every area, the superstars are pulling away Take, for example, Apple has 20% share of the smartphone market only, but captures 92% of the industry's operating profit because it owns all the apps. Yeah, it's, it's, it's figured out the game. Google and Facebook, again, we know that Google and Facebook may be taking in as much as 60% of all online revenue in the world. So what happens is firms are pulling away as well. And then employees in these firms are pulling away. Yeah. And in fact, a recent study in the States suggested that a significant amount of the inequality in wages in the United States amongst the middle class is the difference between whether you work for a superstar firm or you work for an average firm. And this is driving inequality. And then the question is, what happens to the average salary man or salary woman, who for many, many years was doing fine. What's the future for them? And the future for them is if you're not in the superstar league, you fall behind. So with the gramophone and the record and the radio, the technology of its day, we're back to this whole idea of disruptive technology. Yeah, which we spoke about a, a couple of weeks with ago. With Trumpeter. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is precisely what is happening right now. But interestingly, Schumpeter and economics kind of self-satisfactory approach say, well, this is happening to the economy and things get disruptive and bad companies go out of business and new companies flourish. And this is the what he called the relentless scale of disruptive technology. 
and the relentless scale, John, of creative destruction. And that's fine if all it applies to is products. Yeah. Disruptive technology, when it's to do with products, is no big deal. You know, in actual fact, it's a really good thing. So a better product comes along. But what happens when you disrupt a political system? What happens when technology aids and abets forces in our societies which are very dangerous, which are destabilizing, but which actually aim to destabilize? Because what strikes me about the Brexiteers now is that they want to destroy in order to rebuild. This is their great mantra. And this is kind of terrifying because when you destroy, you cause damage, serious, serious damage. And if you look at Trump, Trump is a disruptive technology. Boris Johnson, these are disruptors. This is what they're doing. And they're dramatically changing the society. So like in all things in economics, you skip from manageable economics to unmanageable social and political ramifications, which lead to bizarre sort of outcomes. But this isn't the first time this has happened. You know, we could go back to the French Revolution, which was a a populist revolution, uh, and the Russian Revolution. It was the outsiders rising up against the insiders. Both examples are terrifying because they both led, in both cases, to the Great Terror. Yeah. So you have Robespierre, incredibly brilliant, articulate tactician, is the hero of the people. Danton being the hero of the people as well. Robespierre cuts Danton's head off, begins to become the finger pointer in chief, which is always really scary. And he denounces everybody. And the French unleash this vicious civil war upon themselves, ending up, Robespierre ends up guillotined himself. And who emerges out of this? Napoleon Bonaparte becomes the great leader of revolutionary France. You look at Soviet Union, the main leader of the revolution is Lenin, but his sidekick isn't Stalin, it's Trotsky, a vicious, vicious military psychopath. Not half as vicious as the little fellow from Georgia, Stalin. Yeah. And then what you do is you see exactly the same thing. The comrades in arms all fight against each other. Trotsky, we know, gets killed in Mexico in the 1940s but you have a great purge and a great terror which follows the utopian idea of revolution. And this is what terrifies me as an evolutionary character, not a revolutionary character, is that revolutions start with great slogans, always with the utopia idea of in the future it's going to be fantastic and end up in a bloodbath. But perhaps they're unavoidable. I hope they are. Well, I I think revolutions can be avoided and I think they should be avoided because people like me would be the first up against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the fucking I'll be pulling the trigger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, Mike. So we started in the UK with the suspension of parliament and the rise of populism. And you're saying that one of the, the, the core reasons for the rise of this is superstar economics. So, you know, what's the impact of that and where are we going from here? Very much so in the West. 
Because if you think the social contract in the West for the last 50 years is, if you behave well, you go, you get a good education, you get a good job, there is a conveyor belt that you are therefore on, and that's going to bring you more or less upwards. So consequently, you're going to be richer than your parents, your kids are going to be richer than you. So the promise is that tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday, which is why you get up, which is why the centre ground has been able to garner the centre, right? Because we're on this conveyor belt together. Mm. And that was very much the case in the United States from the late 1940s up until the late 1980s, in the United Kingdom from the late 1940s up until, again, maybe the early 90s, and in most European countries up until about 10 or 15 years ago. What superstar economics has done, it's contributed. It's not the only one, but it's a contributing factor to the idea that the conveyor belt has stopped for the average dude. Yeah. And right beside them, in their midst, is somebody on a much faster conveyor belt, the superstar. Now, what happens, therefore, is that this breaks down politics because in the old days, we had left and right, or urban and rural, and maybe male and female, or, you know, conservative and liberal, all those big set-piece battles that dominated political discourse 10, 15, 20 mm. years ago, can't really deal with what is going on now. Because what has happened is, if you're on the conveyor belt that has stopped, right, you're very much an outsider. And the insiders of people who are on the conveyor belt that's continuing to go reasonably or very, very quickly. So politics, I believe, has split now, not between left and right, et cetera, but between insiders and outsiders. And the insiders can be on the left, the old left and the right. So, for example, if you take people who are very, very well got in the political system, hugely well remunerated trade union members or members of big public sectors, they can kind of speak the language of the left, but they know that ultimately when they sit down with the government, they'll be able to carve out a few quid for themselves. So they're kind of insiders on the left. And then, of course, you've got insiders on the right will be, you know, for example, bankers looking for a bailout or something, right? But all of them have one thing, John, which is they have access to power. So insiders always have a channel to the powerful. Yeah. This leaves the outsiders as people who've nobody to speak for them at the top table. They don't have any influence, they don't have any power, they don't have any mechanisms, and therefore they don't have a stake in society because they're on the conveyor belt that's going backwards. Yeah. But they might not have a stake, but they have a vote. Yeah. This is the key. So once they have a vote, once they feel their stake in society is diminished, they then vote for the person or the policies that seems like it's going to give them a safety blanket. And they vote for people who push the buttons. Yeah. So Johnson, despite being an Etonian, an incredibly posh person, can push the buttons with workers in Sunderland or fishermen in Yarborough or wherever they're from saying, I'm on your side because they're outsiders and they vote usually for nationalism, for ethnicity, because what they want to do is they realize in the great game of competition and the free market, they have lost. So understandably, what they want to do is they want to change the rules of the game to ethnicity or national or white or some ethnic nationalistic idea of tribe. So this is what Trump has tackled. Yeah, he's very good at it. And what Trump has tapped into, it's amazing about Trump, but Trump voters are the richest in America. 
and some of the poorest. Yeah. And what he's done, he's managed to be able to be all of the above by creating this idea that the guy on the fast conveyor belt is a member of the elite, which nobody's ever really defined what that is, but it's not me. Yeah. It's not me, it's those guys over yeah. there. So that is where, to come back to Brexit, that's where the politics of Brexit become totally interlinked with the politics of superstar economics, but also, and we're going to be talking to AJ Temelkaran, we're going to be sharing a conversation I had with her recently on Thursday, where she talks about the fragility of democracy. So ultimately, John, democracy is a fragile flower. When it's blooming, when the sun is shining, and there's lots of water, it's getting lots and lots of love, it blooms. Yeah. But we don't realize quite how fragile it is. And we don't realize quite once you change the circumstances, you change the dynamic, you change the social contract, you change people's expectation of what society should deliver for them and their kids, that flower can wither in front of our very eyes. And my fear is that is what's happening in the United Kingdom. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's professor at Duke University. He's Dan Ariely. And that's really the big thing for me about behavioral economics is that often we have to admit that a lot of the things we do, we do because of intuition. Who do we choose to spend our life with? Uh, what kind of house do we decide to buy? Uh, how do we decide to educate our kids? Who do we want to So we kind of go on, we go on a hunch almost. <clears throat> we go on a hunch um, and we tend to trust those hunches. Uh, but, but do we have any evidence uh, for that? And what happens to all the hunches that are not that good? Are we actually creating lots of damages? And, and it turns out the answer is yes. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya.